Congress, the President, the Supreme Court. We think of government and politics through the lens of what is happening in Washington. But we are far more affected by our local officials, community volunteers, and everyday citizens than anything decided in D.C. This podcast brings these stories to you through conversations with the people shaping our lives in our communities. I'm Jack Clett. Born and raised in South Jersey, I know firsthand the strength of our neighborhoods. At 16, I volunteered for my congressman, where I learned that constituent service is a primary responsibility of any elected official. Constituent service is another name for good government. These are the good stories of government doing good in our towns, our boroughs, our municipalities, our counties, our regions, our state. I'm Jack Lett, and this is For the Public. My guest today is Amal Sinha, Executive Director of the New Jersey ACLU since 2017. This year, Amal served as campaign chairman in the effort to pass New Jersey's ballot measure number one, working as part of a broad coalition, New Jersey Can 2020. The New Jersey Can 2020 effort educated and engaged voters to vote yes in favor of amending New Jersey's constitution to legalize the cultivation, processing, and sale of retail marijuana. Amal has vast experience serving as an advocate in the defense and protection of constitutional rights. Additionally, he serves as adjunct faculty at Marymount Manhattan College, teaching courses on constitutional law, civil rights, and criminal justice. Amal is one adjunct professor to another. Welcome to For the Public. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. As we record this episode, with 70% of the votes counted, uh, yes, New Jersey, you two are still counting votes. Uh, The measure has passed overwhelmingly with two-thirds of New Jersey voters voting yes, so congratulations. Thank you. There is quite a bit to unpack here, so let's start with what voters actually did last Tuesday. Uh, In short, they approved legalization and retail sales, as well as the levying of a state sales tax and the possibility of a local tax on cannabis products. But it isn't like folks can just hop on down to the quarter mart and get some, some edibles right now. Right. <laughs> there's, there's significant work that has to happen, critical activity from the New Jersey State Legislature first. Your thoughts, Amal, on the ballot results, and can you speak just generally to where we are at this point? Happy to. Um, the, what voters voted on uh, was a ballot question that would amend the Constitution. Uh, of New Jersey. So in in January, what we'll see is constitutional language that will add provisions to the state constitution that would say uh, a form of marijuana is now subject to regulation by the state, um, you know, and it will be legalized and 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 sold. Um, and the regulation has to come from legislation. Uh, but just on the the win itself, um, you know, NJ Can twenty twenty led a campaign that was focused on racial justice. Uh, we were putting front and center racial and social justice issues to voters. Uh, and we recognized early on that from our polling that voters truly cared about those racial justice priorities, including stopping the collateral consequences of arrests, uh, making sure that we are not having those racially disparate arrests where in New Jersey you're three and a half times more likely to be arrested for possession if you're black than if you're white, uh, making sure that we stop the waste of police resources uh, hundreds of millions of dollars a year going towards something that most of New Jersey believes should be legalized. Making sure that when we do legalize, the tax revenue goes to those communities hardest hit by the war on drugs. 
Uh, so those are just some of the things that resonated with voters along the way. And those are the messages that we lifted up along the campaign. And we saw a victory like none other. 67% um, of New Jerseyans have said yes. Uh, and that is really remarkable because the odds were against us. This was a vote by mail election, obviously, as you know. While there was greater turnout, we, we thought that chances of disenfranchisement were greater because our question was actually on the back of the ballot and the chances of unforced errors, like not signing the mail-in ballot or, or missing a deadline were greater. Um, and, uh, and we won by a greater margin than any other marijuana-related ballot initiative in the country ever. Um, and we won every county in New Jersey uh, uh, overwhelmingly. So there wasn't a county that I think came below something like 56 or 57% in New Jersey. So it's a really exciting moment for New Jersey and the marching orders to the legislature are clear. Um, pass legalization, do it swiftly and do it with racial justice and social justice centered. Yeah, I think that the overwhelming public support uh, is notable, especially given the issues that the legislature had in advancing any type of legalization activity prior to this ballot measure. Uh, so congratulations on that. Thank you. And I, I'm curious to, you, you are right, there is so much more to this than uh, the novelty of using recreational uh, marijuana. So can you speak a little bit more to that? I'm curious to know your thoughts on whether or not uh, the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter protests, um, helped what uh, helped get out the vote, the yes vote for this initiative. Do, do you believe that people were connecting the dots and truly seeing this as more than just legalizing marijuana for recreational use, but really tying it to uh, the idea of social justice and connecting decriminalization as part of that? I sure hope so, um, because we were living in and continue to live in a moment of nationwide scrutiny over policing in America. Um, we are uh, having these sustained Black Lives Matter uh, protests all across the country. There are pockets of New Jersey, white suburban areas in New Jersey, where there is a Black Lives Matter protest every week. Um, and, and I haven't seen anything like that before. Um, so it's important to connect the dots, um, and I hope that voters had it front and center. Uh, you know, and I hope that people realize that we're not just talking about, you know, in the conversation around reimagining policing or defunding the police, no matter what you feel about it, um, you know, th that has sustained in America right now. Uh, and defunding the police doesn't necessarily just mean looking at um, you know, the, the budget lines that police departments have all across the country, although that's a significant portion of it. Uh, we also have to disarm the police of those laws and tools that allow for oppression of minority communities. And that includes marijuana prohibition, which has been used for decades now uh, to uh, have control over black communities in, in, in the United States. And New Jersey is no exception where the overwhelming a disproportionate majority of folks who have been arrested for marijuana in our state are black. Um, and, uh, and I think it's important to note that both white folks and black folks use marijuana at the same rates, according to federal data. Um, so it, it, there is something um, uh, that is, uh, you know, that, that, that's there with marijuana prohibition that is allowing uh, police, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to uh, create a system that disproportionately burdens black folks in American society, and that's unjust. And so I hope people are connecting the dots. 
uh, to the bigger picture moment. And the reason why, you know, people have been asking about decriminalization as an alternative to legalization. And throughout the campaign, we, we were talking about um, both things as complementary. Um, you know, the, the fact that decriminalization, which removes the criminal consequences of marijuana possession, uh, uh, the fact is that it doesn't address all of the social justice harms that we need to see addressed. Um, because yes, I would love to see a world in which we're no longer making arrests for marijuana possession. However, what decriminalization still invites is those police interactions with community members uh, for enforcing warnings or violations or whatever the case might be. Uh, and it's those police interactions, those unnecessary interactions that sometimes escalate and lead to tragic outcomes for people of color. So uh, uh, I would love to see a world in which we decriminalize before we legalize um, so that when, uh, uh, while legislation is being worked on or before it takes effect for legalization, we at least stop the arrests um, and, and limit the number of police interactions. Um, but uh, as we uh, lead to legalization, we see a pathway towards totally eliminating uh, the number of police interactions that we see across the, across the state. The leadership in the legislature and the governor's office are grappling a little bit right now um, as it relates to uh, revenue and tax policy um, uh, for recreational marijuana. Uh, we're talking about not only the, the, the state sales tax, but also uh, local taxes and excise tax. Uh, what efforts are you working on or do you support to ensure that uh, revenue produced uh, as an outcome of all of this will benefit those communities that have indeed been hit hardest by the war on drugs? So our principle, one of our principles going into this work um, several years ago was to make sure that tax revenue goes back to communities um, that have been damaged by the war on drugs and by prohibition. Um, you know, those communities are oftentimes the same communities that have been, uh, that have been ignored economically. Um, and those are the communities that are oftentimes lacking in infrastructure more than other communities. Those are the communities that are oftentimes dealing with underfunded public schools um, and, uh, and, you know, lead and water and, you know, environmental concerns, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes, you know, socioeconomic status, whether it's individual or community-based is inextricably intertwined with an unjust racial hierarchy that we have in our country um, and, and you know, with black folks bearing the burden of that in American society. So uh, what we would like to see is uh, uh, tax revenue that's generated that's built off of uh, the historic criminalization of communities of color over, over the course of our American history. Um, that tax revenue should go back into those communities to uh, address those infrastructure problems or those social services that we know can help both individuals and communities. Um, you know, right now, the legislation that we saw uh, that was introduced uh, uh, on Friday um, said that the money would be going to a couple of places. One would be uh, to the operations of the Cannabis Regulatory Commission, and that's fair. We need, you know, to support a regulatory body that will uh, implement regulations. Uh, and the second was to police, to train drug uh, recognition experts. Hmm. And I think that, um, look, that was also the case for the piece of legislation that was, you know, in, uh, that was introduced in, in 2019. However, there was some 
but there was some uh, tax revenue that was going to go to funding expungements as well. Um, and, and folks may think that money for expunges is no longer needed because there's a separate law that uh, was signed uh, that takes care of expungements and there's a separate budget allocation, although I do believe that we need ongoing revenue for that process. But even if we didn't, I think that 2019 is different from 2020 or 2020 is different from 2019 um, in that there is more attention towards policing and racial justice right now. And it would be tone deaf, I think, for the legislature to simply say that this money is blindly going to go to police. Um, and and it, it doesn't even throw a symbolic bone to those communities that have been hardest hit by the war on drugs when it easily could have. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a, um, a problem of intention. The legislation sets the intention for where priorities are in, in, in the legislature. But it's also a PR problem and an optics problem for the legislature, right? They have plenty of opportunity to say, like, this is, yeah, some of this money may go to police for the limited purpose of training drug recognition experts, which, you know, we, we can feel many ways about and, and, you know, the ACLU has a position on about their scientific accuracy, et cetera. Um, but no need to get into all of that. But then there's also money going towards communities that have been harmed by enforcement. Right. So um, to say that the only place or one of two only places that the money is going to go is towards more enforcement when we're dealing with the injustice of marijuana enforcement over the past several decades. And every lawmaker that supports this bill says that they care about that front and center, um, I think is is incongruous, to say the least. It's mm -hmm. it's sort of, um, you know, it, I, I think it, it misses the mark. And I think there's plenty of opportunity to say that there's money that's going to be reserved for um, people of color and those communities that have been ravaged by the war on drugs. And, um, and the way to do that, you know, the second aspect of this is that the sales tax alone um, is, um, it, it pales in comparison to other states that have legalized, right? Like most other states have had taxes of, um, you know, 20% to 40%. Whereas in, in New Jersey, we're contemplating a total tax of state and municipal of about 8%. And I think that's, that's, um, you know, uh, that's also a missed opportunity. Uh, you know, while the ballot question defined the nature of the sales tax, uh, I think there's an opportunity for an excise tax because we, we are not going to generate the amount of money that we need to see from this industry if we don't adequately tax it. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, I saw recently that both uh, Assembly Speaker Coughlin and Governor Murphy uh, were interested in supporting an excise tax. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's encouraging. Um, and that's something that I think is necessary because, you know, yeah, we want money to go to the right places, but we also need to generate sufficient money uh, so that it can go to multiple places. So typically things get, uh, we're kind of getting in the weeds a bit on some of the yeah. sausage making, but as they say, the devil is in the details. So specifically, uh, typically we would see uh, legislation pass and then over time there will be efforts to iterate on that to make things a bit better. Uh, sometimes with hot button issues like this though, what you get out of the gate is what you get for an extended period of time. So how bullish are you on the idea that uh, in the end, and I believe that the legislature has a brief window of time to actually pass this legislation, uh, that in the end, uh, we will end up with uh, uh, 
with legislation that um, that addresses this the way in which certainly you have just advocated that the ACLU has advocated uh, is the way in which it needs to be dealt with. I'm, I'm optimistic um, because the signs from the legislature are that they are working on amendments. Um, and, you know, we um, we've been active on social media recently and uh, and it seems like there's a lot of attention. You know, uh, uh, voters and constituents are making hundreds, if not thousands of calls to the legislature right now. As we speak, we put on an action alert uh, to make sure that the legislature's the legislature hears from its constituents. Um, and it, look, if, if the legislature and individual legislators are interested in reflecting the views of their constituents, they should listen to them. And the uh, constituents through our campaign made it loud and clear that you know over 67% voted yes, 66% uh, are interested in money going to social services. Um, they, they strongly support money going to social services. Um, and about 61% uh, of voters uh, strongly support money going towards communities that have been hit by the war on drugs. Um, and so the overwhelming majority of, of bipartisan voters, voters from all walks of life, are um, interested in, in money going to the right places. So I'm optimistic that the legislature will listen to them. Obviously, I have a healthy dose of skepticism of, of any legislative process because it is a creature of compromise. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, I, I think in this moment, it would be a missed opportunity for the legislature to not do this the right way. Um, and, uh, and look, we have a, a, we have a short window. I, I think look, in a lot of ways, um, there was a lot that could have been done before the vote. Look, nobody... Um, you know, polling from two years ago suggested that, um, that, you know, the majority of New Jerseyans supported legalization, right? And of course, the polling from six months ago su- said that over 60%, you know, supported legalization. Mm-hmm. So most people um, knew, and the legislature certainly knew, that this was probably going to pass. Um, and there was time, I think, to get the details figured out. Uh, I've always said for the past several months that it would be a gross injustice if the legislature passed legalization, or excuse me, if voters passed legalization on November 3rd, and we continued making arrests on November 4th. And sure enough, that's the situation that we found ourselves in. Because neither the legislature nor the executive branch um, uh, figured out how to stop those arrests um, beforehand. You know, I think the the legislature could have passed decriminalization earlier to take effect on November 4th. Uh, They did not. Uh, the attorney general's office could have issued a directive deprioritizing marijuana arrests. Uh, it did not do that. Um, the courts have continued to allow prosecutions of marijuana uh, possession arrests. Um, we've seen as most recently as a week before the election, um, we saw the uh, Ocean County prosecutor actually take the judicial and prosecutorial resources of appealing a dismissal of a very minor marijuana uh, possession case. Wow. So these these kids were arrested for marijuana possession. They had a joint on them. Uh, this was over the summer. They had less than eight grams of marijuana on them, tiny amount. And they um, they were arrested. The The lower court dismissed it as a de minimis uh, infraction. Like they said that it's it's not worth the criminal record. It's not worth the judicial resources to actually go forward with this case. The Ocean County prosecutor actually appealed that decision and said that they were going to take it up. And these are kids that, regardless of who they are, it shouldn't matter, but they have no criminal record. Mm -hmm. They're in college. 
And now we're going to jeopardize. And the court agreed, the higher court, the three panel judge, uh, the, the three panel court agreed. Um, and, uh, and they said that, you know, these kids should face the consequences of a criminal conviction. And that means that they're going to, their futures are going to be jeopardized at least a little bit going forward. Um, and meanwhile, we were about a week away from legalizing marijuana, uh, on November 3rd. So it, it, it's clear to me that, you know, prosecutor, we can't rely on prosecutor discretion. Um, we can't rely on police discretion. Um, and, uh, and, you know, police, uh, shouldn't be, uh, in, in, certain, in certain cases, uh, charged with subjectively determining whether or not something is legal or illegal. Because when we do that, we know what happens. Black and brown people are subject to more harsh treatment and white people are not. And mm -hmm. this lack of uniform, uniformity and inequity and inequality persists. And Amal, there are studies that show that New Jersey has been so weird about this issue. And by weird, I just mean that um, pretty stringent and force and and forceful in its enforcement of um of of elite quote unquote illegal use uh and and possession um we could get into a lot now about all the reasons why that is uh but hopefully folks will now see that uh there are no political headwinds here the wind is is at their back so hopefully they will um they will they will act like that is indeed the case so um, one final question for you. This is a podcast that is about the good of government, the idea that it is our state and local citizens, citizen servants, citizen leaders like yourself who work to make government succeed for the public. So my simple question to you, uh, why have you decided to make advocacy and, and justice a career what inspired you to serve in this way? Oh, that's a that's not a simple question at all. Um, so I think um, you know I appreciate it. I, I think you know, throughout my life, I you know I, I couldn't really articulate it, but I always knew that there was injustice that existed in society. Whether it was you know I come from an immigrant family. My parents came to this country in the in the early seventies. Um, grew up in, um, you know, my parents made their way through uh, the Deep South um, and, uh, and then finally settled in New Jersey. Uh, I grew up in Lawrence Township, New Jersey, in Mercer County, um, which is equidistant between Trenton and Princeton. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I saw that diversity in my school system where you had um, some spillover from Princeton with, with more affluent folks and, and less diversity and some spillover from Trenton with people on the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, and, uh, and some of the tensions that, that existed in my school, uh, in my school system were oftentimes um, around socioeconomic and race, uh, race, uh, racial justice issues. And, um, and it was just left unsaid, right? Like it, it, you, you could tell that that was the underlying issue um, but nobody really spoke about it. Um, so I, I witnessed those things growing up, um, you know, and, and being, you know, a South Asian um, American, Indian American, uh, uh, I, I didn't really know where I fell on the, on the racial hierarchy that I always knew existed. Uh, it kind of was unclear to me. Nobody really thought about Indians when we talked about racial justice in America um, and, uh, and, you know, it didn't really feel as though we were included in any sort of like political power assessment. Even today, 
like, you know, we have the biggest proportion of South Asian Americans uh, in the country living in New Jersey. However, um, you know, we're not seen as a voting bloc or as, as, as important of a political um, group as other uh, uh, communities that have uh, less representation than us. Uh, and, and I don't want to be fighting for crumbs. So, like, I want to make sure that all of us have representation and that we are all uh, uh, treated as, as important segments of the political calculus. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up acknowledging that some of those things, whether they were interpersonal interactions that I experienced or, or um, more systemic, always existed, but I didn't have the words for it. And I, it wasn't until law school that I realized what those problems were, that there was something more institutional in the world that was governing how we treated each other. Um, and it, it wasn't until after law school that I realized that, you know, not only could I articulate the problems, but I could have a hand in articulating the solutions as well. Um, and, uh, and after that, uh, you know, I saw the ACLU as, as sort of the, uh, the, the standard bearer for um, uh, justice oriented work in the United States. Uh, and so I started my career at the New York affiliate of the ACLU working on criminal justice and immigrant rights issues. And then I went on to uh, focus more deeply on, on uh, criminal justice issues when I was at the Innocence Project for a couple of years. Um, and then when you know, my, my home state of New Jersey had an opening for the head of the ACLU here, um, I jumped on the opportunity and, and luckily it worked out. So um, it's been uh, you know, a, a great um, you know, several years of a career so far. And I, I really appreciate every opportunity that I've had. It's a privilege to be able to do this work. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it sometimes is exhausting and, um, and both emotionally and physically. Um, I get to work with tremendous colleagues at the ACLU of New Jersey who are just brilliant people and, um, and have the deepest empathy for uh, every type of individual in our society and, um, and are just skilled lawyers and policy experts and communications experts. Um, so it's a really, uh, you know, um, uh, it's, a, it's a great privilege to be able to do what I get to do. And, uh, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. So um, I guess, you know, in short, the reason is that I grew up a certain way in New Jersey, experiencing diversity, yet also experiencing segregation and, and witnessing injustice in my, own, uh, in my own situation. But I also recognize that my identity is neither the most privileged nor the most oppressed. And there are people on, on, on that, you know, experiencing oppression based on their identity at a far greater rate and, and with far more severity than I do. And, uh, and I want to use whatever privilege I have to pay it forward and make sure that, that we are at advocating for people that have less. Amal Sinha, Executive Director of ACLU New Jersey, Citizen Leader. Thanks so much for joining for the public. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. Last episode, our Good Government segment focused on urban farming in the city of Camden. Today, we head southwest in our state to put a focus on the length some people will go to ensure that the voters of New Jersey are heard, that every vote is counted with as little delay as possible. We head to Salem County, New Jersey, where two Democrats and two Republicans are counting votes in quarantine. Why? Well, the problem began the Thursday following Election Day, when a positive COVID-19 case was reported. Two additional Board of Elections workers followed with positive tests. As of the recording of this podcast, three other workers are symptomatic and awaiting results. 
All of this led to additional workers needing to quarantine and to be monitored for symptoms. But the votes must be counted. So every day, a Republican, a Democrat, and a representative from the sheriff's office bring uncounted ballots to a sequestered trailer. Inside are the four workers, two Democrats, two Republicans, in quarantine together, counting votes. With all of the rancor in our national politics focused on mythical mass voting fraud, it's easy to lose sight on who was counting the ballots we cast last week. These are not nefarious, sinister others determined to hide ballots, add ballots, steal ballots, trash ballots. Nope, these are people, both Republicans and Democrats, who are making a significant sacrifice to count every vote, legally, honestly, impartially. Of all the things we do, there is nothing more noble, more just, more American than voting. It is our ultimate expression of free political speech. It requires people of good faith who honor our democratic process to work the polls and count our votes. It is so easy to think of these people as something less than who they really are, members of our communities, our neighbors, our family, our friends. There is little, if nothing better, than the work they do. So if you know someone who worked the polls or who counts our votes, thank them. They've really been put through their paces this year. They represent the very best of good government. Learn more about this story from nj.com by visiting forthepublicpod.com. That brings us to the end of another episode. I'll leave you with this. Whether you get your podcast through Google, Apple, Spotify, or somewhere else, reviews help to expose the show to even more listeners. Good reviews are appreciated. I'd like to thank my guest, Amal Sinha, as well as everyone who voted, who worked the polls, and those counting our votes. Yes, still counting our votes. It's yeoman's work, and we are grateful. Until next time, I'm Jack Klett, and this is For the Public.